All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, we have uh, a panel here of uh, right now we have two of the best of the best. Uh, we have Chris Norton uh, with iBankers Direct, uh, one of the premier broker dealers in the space. Uh, then we have my good buddy, Nate Dotson. Nate Dotson, one of the most experienced securities attorneys uh, in the country. Uh, he is really going to be bringing some some fantastic expertise into this discussion uh, and I believe we might have Frank Bellotti with 21st Capital joining us as well. Uh, but we'll go ahead and get started with Chris and Nate. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing great. Doing, Thank you for asking. Doing great. Still trying to figure out this whole techie, uh, make my camera work, but but working on it. Yeah. Hey, you know, Nate, it's funny because I had to go in and use Google on mine. I was I was using Safari and I had had a couple issues. So um, uh that uh, I, I had some issues as well with it. But um, well, what I want to start off with, gentlemen, is, um, you know, obviously we're going to be talking about real estate. We're talking about the Jobs Act. And obviously we're talking about then adding in tokenization. And I think ultimately, uh, uh, you know, as, as Oscar had said kind of in the opening, you know, ground zero is the uh, the uh, essentially the regulations, um, whether you're going to sell a traditional security, whether you're going to sell a hybrid security, there's Nate. Um, you, you know, it, it, it really does come down to the regulations first and foremost, because that's the vehicle that you're going to be using to go to the market and offer the securities. And, you know, in general, there's really kind of three primary um, uh, programs uh, available that most people would use regulation D. Regulation CF, we're actually seeing real estate operators use ever since they took the limit up to $5 million. Uh, and then also uh, Regulation A+. Um, Nate, why don't we start with you? Do you want to just give us a quick rundown on those three programs and just kind of the, the benefits and disadvantages of them? Uh, it doesn't need to be super in-depth. Obviously, you could, you could speak for hours on those three programs. But just to kind of give a little bit of a background to the audience as far as what are the options there? Because that is going to be the starting point. That's the vehicle they're going to use to offer these securities. S sounds real good to me. Well, at the end of the day, we're all here and learning about this because of the general solicitation, the marketing options that are available under the regulations we're going to talk about uh, with uh, kind of the, the most classic one being Regulation D, uh, traditionally, now the Rule 506C, which allows the advertising and marketing everywhere, as long as you're only working with the verified accredited investors. So definitely a, a nice way to get to the closing table on the real estate because you can get there quick and easy, but you have a very small pool with the accredited only. You're, you expand the pool a little bit with Regulation CF quite literally that regulation crowdfunding that allows you to now accept capital from everybody accredited or non-accredited subject to some limitations. But now you're dealing with the limitation of only being able to raise up to $5 million. Great for the little deals. But if you're looking to do the $20 million, $50 million fund capital raise, then you're really probably targeting more the regulation A options which again, you can accept the capital from the accredited or non-accredited uh, investors. You can uh, generally solicit market everywhere, but now you're capped at $75 million in total and you go through much deeper dive qualification process with the SEC that 
costs a little bit more, takes a little bit longer, but ultimately is setting up more of a long-term, larger platform compared to the regulation CF and more versatility than the Reg D quite often. Yeah, and you know, actually to jump ahead real quick, Nate, because I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear your, your thoughts on this. So with Reg A, uh, the Reg A does have to pass a qualification process with the SEC. So you are going to have an SEC examiner reviewing the Form 1A, reviewing the exhibits. Um, do, you, do you see any uh, kind of situations where selling a token might increase uh, or create some complexities there, like may, maybe increase the... Uh, uh, um, potential for comments or what have you. Um, what do you? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are what's been going on in the tokenization world is not going to go on in the future because of exactly what you're you're nailing with. The SEC is hyper interested in the tokenization and what's going on in the crypto world. Uh, they're interested, but they're still trying to figure out really what's going on. And I don't think they really understand what's a security, what's not a security, the SEC itself, which kind of makes it an interesting perspective that you assume that they know everything, but we're seeing in the crypto markets, they're just bringing lawsuits right and left, trying to figure out where kind of the end of their jurisdiction yeah, begins and where really the tokenization, not as a security, uh, really starts. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of a maturity thing, isn't it? I mean, like, we, you know, uh, LLCs have been around forever. Uh, you know, there's obviously a tremendous backstop uh, in, in terms of, you know, legal work for operating agreements and membership interests and what have you. And, and all that's very straightforward. And, and yet, obviously, the token stuff's new. So, you know, we see people where they, you know, they, they, they kind of big picture it like we want to sell a token. Uh, but ultimately, they haven't really, they haven't sat with it. They got said and said, well, hey, you know, what's the rights document look like for this? You know, you're going to have essentially a, a certificate of designation, if you want to think of it that way, uh, when, it, when it comes to this. And, and that also then is where you really need to have the proper professionals on board, because if you don't have a rights document outlining the rights and the terms of those hybrid securities of those tokens, and you're coming in through Reg A especially, you're probably going to get some comments because those examiners at the SEC are, are they're going to be asking some questions on that. Um, Chris, so let let's let's go to you real quick, Chris. Um, as far as the uh, real estate and the token angle, what do you see a lot as far as a broker dealer and the use of tokens with real estate? Like, what what type of deals do you guys tend to see there? Is it is it existing? Uh, uh, assets where they're looking to, to get liquidity and they want to tokenize, uh, but still maintain control of the asset? Or is it more like real estate funds where they're acquiring assets? I mean, on the broker dealer side, what, what do you tend to see? I'm having more people ask me questions regarding, you know, the, the, the ability to tokenize, to denominate, you know, to denominate out smaller interests on people that are looking to liquidate, but still keep control of the property. And the feedback that I'm kind of giving them to an extent is that you could tokenize, but you don't know that wherever you tokenize, you don't know that there's a buyer on the other end. So until the markets become a little bit more liquid, it may it, it may not make sense for everyone. Yeah, and I guess that's a good point, too, right, is the uh, the attractiveness and the the, the sales aspect of this, that uh, ultimately, if you have a token that's going out, 
uh, is that going to be the right fit uh, for the audience? You know, is the audience that you're going to, as far as the investor audience, are they going to understand that token? Are they going to feel comfortable investing into it? And again, that drives back to, you know, uh, back to the work that Nate would do, right? I mean, you, you got to make sure all this stuff is is backstop properly. So um, do, you, do you have any feelings on that, Chris? I mean, if someone wants to execute a token offering, I mean, it, it, are you seeing these kind of deals where they are um, they, they are being sold and people understand these securities or is there is there still some hesitancy there because it is new? I think there's still some hesitancy there because it's so new. I think as more people adopt and the market becomes more and more liquid and more people understand what they're you know, signing up for or getting themselves into when they purchase a token, I think that barrier to entry will be reduced. But as far as like right now, it's still super new. So if you're going to go and, and, and do one of those offerings, you know, you really need to educate, you know, the public to be able to get them to be interested in it. Um, so I think that there's still some some, you know, some ways to go on it. Um, Nate, as far, as far as when we look at these, uh, look at these deals, um, when you start looking at doing tokenizing real estate, um, you know, what, what are some of the challenges there that are, are, let's just say a property owner, let's go ahead and put an example on the table. I'm a property owner. I own a multifamily property. Uh, I would like to, to get some liquidity, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and tokenize the asset and sell these tokens. Um, what are some of the challenges that, that I may face? Uh, and, and, and I say challenges, maybe what are some of the advantages then of, of the tokens as compared to say a traditional structure? Let's start with challenges. What challenges would I face? I'm sitting in your office, Nate. I got this real estate asset. I've heard about this token stuff. What, what would you tell me as far as, look, Doug, here's some of the challenges you might face going this route. I, you know, the way that I really coach any of our, our clients is starting with, uh, well, why do you want to tokenize and what do you think the benefits really are? Because I think there's a, a misunderstanding at the end of the day with the vast majority of people in the market. They hear tokenization, they hear crowdfunding, they hear cryptocurrency, and it's just buzzwords, buzzwords, buzzwords. And I really want people to, to kind of understand that there's some benefits to the tokenization in terms of the ease of transfers and the possibility for secondary markets that really still need to, to come to fruition. But what's a token, if you ask me? Well, it's as great as this old stock certificate that we used to have around a lot and now you know, very few deals end up being certificated. And now we're talking about, well, now it's a token. Well, really, what's the benefit of that? It's the same kind of benefit at the end of the day, at least in my perspective, as having that stock certificate. It's nice to be able to hand over some sort of representation of the interest and the tokenization very much helps that now all of a sudden, Instead of saying, hey, I want to buy your stock, will you mail me the certificate? That never really actually happens to now we can create an online secondary market or a trading platform where I can put that same certificate, that same token on there, make an offer for people to buy in. And now it's just more of a seamless process compared to what happened in the past. Yeah. Well, and I tell you too, one of the things that I, I, I think is 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 interesting is that 
um, you know, at least from what I always heard that, you know, the, the benefit of the token angle was that there would be, you know, secondary markets where you could gain liquidity. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting is, is with the advent of all these ATS systems now, uh, you know, there's there is that liquidity option for membership interests or limited partnership interests. So uh, so it, it, there's a bit of a leveling of a playing field there, I think, as well. Um, as far as the, uh, you know, the, the, the sales aspect, I mean, I do think one of the things that's interesting and I'll kind of kick this over to Chris to get his thoughts. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've always seen, and I think part of the reason why I'm seeing a lot of people gravitate towards CF and Reg A for these uh, real estate uh transactions is that everybody can get their arms around real estate investing. You know, uh, when you start talking about, you know, biotech companies doing offerings and stuff, you do, you kind of run into a little bit of a risk that uh, these, these concepts are going to fly above the head of some of, of people, myself included. Um, real estate's different, you know, real estate people can understand these things. I mean, I've got guys coming through doing, you know, vacation rental funds where they're buying properties at, you know, beach resorts, lakes, and, and out by, you know, ski mountains. And it's like, when you think about it, you know, those, those are places that people are going to vacation, but they're also places where they're, there's only, they're only building so much coastline, for example. So I think when, when you look at the use of CF and Reg A and being able to access the entire investing public, um, real estate kind of is a bit of a natural fit there because of that. Chris, what, what are you seeing there? I mean, when you have clients that come through, um, do you kind of prefer them to be in those programs where they can access the entire investing public? Um, and then, you know, it, it, do you feel like as far as being a broker dealer, that's extra sophistication that's in a reg A, do you feel like that benefits you as well? That you've got some backstops there that may not be in a reg D like audited financials or the requirement for a transfer agent, what have you? Yeah, I think, um, I do think that, you know, the barrier to entry in terms of launching an, a reg CF or a reg A for real estate, I think is a lot easier than, you know, like you said, a biotech, a technology company, because like you said, people do understand real estate um, and it's not going to fly over the head of a lot of people. And then and then from the due diligence perspective, it's nice to have the audited financials that you get along with the reg A, um, whereas, you know, a lot of companies at that stage don't necessarily have that yet. It's definitely a nice component of it that you have that with the Reg A, um, you know, to fall back on in terms of the due diligence perspective. Yeah. Um, we'll kind of pop in and do a couple of these questions here just because a couple of these are pretty good. So uh, my, my good friend, Laura Pamashian, uh, ha had a question uh, about reduction in timeline for Reg A qualifications. Uh, you know, look, I think ultimately on the on the real estate side, at least from what I've seen, uh, and, and, and submitting these filings, um, you know, real estate stuff tends to be pretty straightforward. So as far as the qualification goes, um, you know, when you've got a, a good firm on board, when you've got a Nate Dotson on board, I mean, you're probably not going to run into comments on a typical real estate deal. It's not a guarantee, obviously, but the real estate stuff tends to be pretty straightforward. So you could see anywhere from a three to five day turnaround from the SEC if there's no comments or a no review situation. Uh, if there are comments on a Reg A, it, it might be about two weeks before you get that comment letter from them. And then as long as they're pretty straightforward, you could turn those around in a day or two and, and, and usually get it back over to the SEC. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, Nate, when we start looking about and looking at, um, uh, you know, where do you start on this? That uh, let you, let's say you got a real estate developer. He needs to raise some outside capital for a development project. 
and and he knows how to develop real estate, but he he, he doesn't really understand how do I go syndicate capital? This is gonna be my first syndication. Um, he may not even have an entity formed yet for this thing. So where where do they start? I mean, obviously the first thing is is they, they need to pick up a phone and call someone like you that is going to be able to get that vehicle in place for them and do it properly. But where where, where really kind of should they start and, and what do kind of the pieces of putting one of these offerings in place look like? I mean, there's entity formation. They got to choose an exemption. There's going to be filing work and offering docs drafted. But where, where does that start? If I'm a syndicator sitting here and I've never done this before, how, how do I, how do I, what's my first step, Nate? If you reached out to, to crowdfunding lawyers, we always start with just some information gathering that is really more than, hey, what securities exemption is it? Well, I kind of take the approach that most people really don't know. Uh, they have their ideas of where they're going to find their investments. They have their ideas of how much money do they need. They may even have their plans of we've got to have it by this drop dead day to get through the closing table. But they don't really understand the different strategies and timelines that are available to them. And I love that uh, people are asking about, you know, how's the timelines working with these Regulation A offerings? And it, it's, Doug, you're, you're spot on. If you get these no review letters or if there's no comments, things can turn around relatively quickly. But if you start to get comments back and generally with the Regulation A, as an example, if you're looking at 75 million, you're usually not doing like a, we've got to get to the closing table within the next 90 days type transaction. It starts to more or less limit what regulatory options you may have of when you need to actually close as well as a course of you know by the time you get to the closing table how much money do you need which also helps define the does a regulation cf work because of the five million dollar cap or are you really almost stuck with the reg d because you don't have a lot of time and you need a bunch of money you can't even make it through the regulation A process. So the getting to know really what the goals are and where a client believes that they're going to get the capital from is a lot of the first steps of getting to know really the, the planning, the structure of what goes out to the market. Yeah. Well, and I tell you too, ultimately what you'll find a lot of times is that, uh, you know, if you're if you're coming in under Reg A plus and, and you don't keep things straightforward, you're gonna that that is obviously when you could start running into comments. So instead of just having physical asset purchases, you want to start trying to mix in buying securities of other funds, and now you're stepping into investment company act considerations and stuff. I mean, all those things start to uh, impact how quickly and and if you will get qualified uh, under Reg A. Um, Chris, let let's chat for a sec about. A broker dealer's role because I, I know there's a lot of people sitting out there they're they're going to have a pretty good understanding probably of nate's role because nate's going to be there drafting offering docs and giving them legal advice on on these processes where does the broker dealer fit in on this um because i think a lot of people you know I, I, a lot of people kind of just automatically look at a broker dealer as they're going to go raise capital when in fact a big piece of what a broker dealer does is, is they are kind of that compliance backstop, uh, or at least a, a, especially a firm like iBankers, they're kind of the compliance backstop for the client. So for, for the benefit of these people on, on the, the podcast today, can you, 
where does the broker dealer fit into these these uh, these deals? Yeah, the broker dealer fits in a lot differently on like a Reg D than they would on a Reg CF or a Reg A. On a Reg D, the broker dealer's role for the most part would be to go out there and to raise the capital for the deal on a Reg D. On a Reg CF or a Reg A, it really changes more to a compliance function to a degree where we're responsible for the, I guess you would say, AML, KYC, making sure that the investors coming into the offering, you know, are not doing anything, are, are allowed to come into the offering, you know, for lack of a better term. So it, it changes from more of a capital raising function on a Reg D to on a Reg A or a Reg CF, more of a compliance function. Um. And, so and there, oh, there, there are, there, I mean, there, there are some uh, caveats to that. You know, there are some broker dealers out there that, you know, will help push um, investors through the pipeline if they go online and they subscribe to the invest now button and they haven't gone out there and filled out all the forms. There are some broker dealers that will contact those investors and reach out to them and try to push them through the pipeline. But for the most part, it's compliance function. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, it, it is interesting because, I mean, ultimately, one of the things that's changed dramatically, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, I mean, obviously the Jobs Act, but the technology that's backstopping these offerings now, um, you know, we're, we're really kind of moving into calling it online capital formation because a lot of these processes that used to happen the old school way, it's all automated now. And, you know, I, I see Nate shake and, you know, nod because Nate remembers those old old school days of, you know, emailing PPMs back and forth and you couldn't generally solicit anything. I mean, I, I tell people a lot of times that, you know, if I was having this conversation with you in 2005, the the options were so limited. I mean, you basically had the old Reg D program and that, I mean, that was pretty much it. I mean, no one was really using Reg A because it was the old Reg A where you had to qualify at the state and federal level. And so um, so I, I think what what is interesting, too, is with this concept of online capital formation and the fact that everything now is really it's very sophisticated. Uh, it's it, everything's online. You know, I, I tell people when you're using a like a Core Connects backend as far as their subscription process, I mean, it takes you longer to buy a T-shirt on Amazon's website than it would be to invest in someone's real estate fund using this technology. Nate, what have you seen as far as that? I mean, like it 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 really is interesting the technology advancements. I mean, you've been around this business a long time. You remember the old school days? They're, they they kind of seem archaic now, don't they? I love when I see a PPM and it still has the PPM number right at the top because you're supposed to keep up with these things. But now all of a sudden the technology just kind of really handles it all for you. Uh, I almost see the, the broker dealers role in general has gone from the financial sales to the technology compliance to, to a large extent. Uh, unless they're they're overseeing the sales uh, represents uh, representatives, but really at the end of the day, the the ability for an investor to find whatever out of the sea of opportunities online, to within an hour find it, qualify, do your due diligence, and invest. Just how streamlined and simplified it is compared to the the years of the past. Not only does it make it easier, but it also has greatly increased the amount of retail and private investors that are 
willing to get into it and just getting over the the procedural well i'm not sure how this takes place there's a level of comfort knowing that oh there's this technology behind core connects mm -hmm. that is just simplifying the information intake plus there's an assumption that from a suitability standard that the broker dealers or other people are actually looking over the information to make sure that you know standardized processes work so you don't have as many fly by night guys out there yeah well and i'll tell you what it, i you know it, it it helps on the sales process because it builds confidence right i mean i come to a raise portal it's a it's a there's a custom raise portal there's a broker dealer on board there's a transfer agent on board there's escrow on board there's kind of that circle of trust there that's front and center makes me feel better chris that technology's probably made your job a lot easier, hasn't it? Being able to, to track things and get KYC and AML work done and everything and clear securities before someone draws off escrow. I mean, that, the technology piece has got to have made the broker-dealer piece a lot easier, hasn't it? Yeah, it's made the, uh, the process seamless to an extent where, you know, definitely leaps and bounds from where it was on like an old school Reg D. This is much, much different and much more seamless. Nate, let's talk about uh, entity types. I mean, uh, you know, this is kind of a starting point for real estate capital raising. So uh, ultimately, I'm going to drive back to be the, the new real estate syndicator. Um, what are my options there? I mean, I, you know, I could do it. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of real estate stuff that happens under LLCs. Uh, we still obviously see LPGP structures for real estate stuff. And we see corporations used. I mean, I, I think a lot of times that tends to be if it's going to be a REIT structure. But uh, it'd probably be helpful for everyone to kind of hear from you on that as far as what, are we, what, what am I looking at as far as the entity that I would form? Uh, obviously, a lot of that may be driven by the project. If it's going to be short term and I'm not really looking for you know a, a tax benefit there for investors, it might just be a simple LLC for an info site development project. But what do we typically see there as it relates to real estate and the entities used? Well, I think it's hilarious that you bring up the old limited partnerships, the GPLP uh, structures. But at the end of the day, people kind of use those words no matter what type of entity is. A general partner is the management of a limited partnership. But I don't know, maybe four or 5% of the time, maybe we'll use an LP uh, limited partnership structure. Most of the time it's using limited liability companies, the LLCs. Uh, they're just honestly the easiest to document for people to understand. There's flexibility there. And ultimately you can pick your tax category, which I think is, can be one of the biggest benefits of the LLCs where partnership, the GPLP taxation, you can have that. If it makes sense to be a REIT, no problem. Uh, and people don't really realize a REIT, a real estate investment trust isn't a trust at all. Generally, it's a corporation that's electing to be taxed as a real estate investment trust. Well, we can use an LLC for that as well because we can choose the corporate REIT tax category. So for that reason, for these reasons, as well as some of the asset protection components of it, the LLCs are honestly used almost probably 90% of the time. And then, of course, we're still using corporations some 
if we're doing more of a JV where it can be a subchapter S corporation with the direct pass through, we don't see that too often on the real estate side because it takes away the opportunities to have like preferred returns, which is just kind of create created a standard expectation with real estate investors. However, we'll still use either an LLC tax as a corporation or a corporation if we're putting together a REIT. Yeah, and it is interesting how a lot of people use those terms interchangeably because you'll get someone that's got an LLC and they're they yet they're talking in their in their you know corporate info about you know the general partner and stuff. And like you said, it's almost kind of interchangeable these days when you think about it. I mean, a lot of people are really familiar with manager managed LLCs, multiple classes of membership interests in those LLCs gives you flexibility to create a, a you know a, a security that's gonna meet the needs of your investors. Um, Chris on the broker dealer side. What do you typically see and do you run into any um, resistance from investors on any structures? Like, would you run into a resistance from someone with something like a limited partnership structure where maybe it's an older structure that maybe they've just kind of, you know, they've always thought of LPGP stuff as being an oil and gas, for example. Um, but do you run into anything like that, comments or feedback from investors where they maybe don't understand a structure like that? Um. It depends on what type of investor that it is. If it's a super high net worth investor, those investors are definitely familiar with the GPLP structure and they have no problem with it. If you're targeting like a general, you know, anyone non-accredited investors, I think maybe it'd be a little bit more complicated for them. So I think it's based on which investors coming into the deal and how the deal is is structured, you know, would really determine on whether you get pushback on it or not. We We have, you know, funds here, venture funds, where we have a GPLP structure and it's um, only from existing clients of ours at the fund. So we're not generally soliciting to the public um, and we haven't had, you know, issues with it, but I could imagine if there's an easier way, you know, that, you know, guys would rather go that route, but we've been using it and haven't had issues. Um, Nate, as far as, uh, as far as like liquidity provisions. So, you know, if, if you look at putting together something like a real estate fund, um, you know, there, there are a lot of times there's kind of two ways to look at it. Hey, I'm going to run this fund for five to seven years. We're going to liquidate assets, go to all cash, and, and that's going to be the exit. You also have people that, that really want to run more of kind of like an evergreen fund. That fund's just going to keep running. Uh, but obviously, at some point, you got to provide liquidity. You know, again, I'll be the real estate guy. I mean, how do I handle that? I, if I just want to keep running this fund, and I don't want to sell assets. Obviously, at some point, investors are going to want liquidity. Well, what do those options look like? And that's where it gets to be very difficult talking about how do you exit a fund that is set up to not just sit on a bunch of cash. It's a little bit different than uh, investing into an equity pool or, or a stock mutual fund where, hey, we need liquidity. We can just go out and sell it the next day. With real estate, you have to have a long enough timeline that it allows the GP, the management to refi or sell assets or to have another mechanism to create that liquidity like a secondary market. Uh, but generally, with, if we're working with somebody that says, I wanna hold on to these assets forever, and the response is, your investors don't wanna hold on to those assets forever, we work through and kind of talk about the pros and cons, cons with, a, uh, with a redemption or a withdrawal policy that, Maybe it is only once a year, 
oftentimes there may be a four to six month allowance to get people's funds out, but it's not necessarily an ongoing, hey, you can sell or ask for your money back at any time. One of the biggest issues that I always see in thinking about real estate is what's a fair market value. And to really have any accuracy with it, you've got to do appraisals or at a minimum broker price opinions for all this real estate assets to come up with the fair market value. That is just very unreasonable to be able to accomplish that on an ongoing daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something to think about too, obviously. I mean, if you want to have a, you know, a liquidity every six months and you're trying to determine a NAV and you've got to obviously have a valuation on that portfolio to determine the NAV, you're, you're, you're obviously going to be working hard on those appraisals or broker price opinions. Um, Chris, as far as asset class, I mean, do you see any kind of preferred asset class at this point? from investors or people gravitating towards multifam, uh, vacation rentals, single families? I mean, do you, do, you, or do you see any trends there or is it kind of all over the map right now? I think it's a bit all over the map. Um, we're not, you know, we do a little bit in the real estate space, but that's not our bread and butter. So I don't know that I would be the, the best guy to give an opinion on that. Nathan might be able to offer a bit of a deeper insight than I would, but um, from what we're seeing, it's all over the map. Okay, yeah. So um, as far as far as Nate, when, when I'm looking at um, uh, the uh, uh, the kind of the, the liability protections on stuff. So let's say that I am a syndicator. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to build out a portfolio. Um, and, you know, as far as the management goes, what does the management structure look like? I mean, is is it myself and my two other partners personally on that LLC as managers? Are there manager entities involved? Let's maybe touch on uh, real quick kind of that org chart as, as far as what that tends to look like. And let's just keep it simple and say it's going to be an LLC. Well, sounds good. LLC, the top dog of the LLC is the manager, which I always thought was a little bit weird. The manager, kind of like that president of a LLC, it can be a person, it can be an entity. Uh, we're pretty consistent with, we're recommending people have a management entity that the investors aren't coming into. It does allow more flexibility from the management side. Oftentimes you may have GP teams, uh, management teams that are coming together and it's a lot easier for them to come together and have other understandings or agreements that affect management, not necessarily the investment by using a completely separate entity that serves as that manager also, if there's any issues, lawsuits with a property with investors, it'll generally contain it a little bit better within the offering entity or the fund or whatever it may be, as well as that management LLC or corporation that ties into it. Gotcha. And then uh, that manager then would be taking things like management fees, acquisition fees, disposition fees. Um, and then I, the structure we tend to see is there'd be a separate kind of sponsor entity that would hold class B interests, for example, in the fund. And that's allowing them to participate. Um, you know, as far as asset classes, I'll just talk. I mean, I, I get a lot of people that 
uh, ask, hey, you know, what what can I raise money for? And, you know, really across all asset classes, I mean, I've, I've seen people doing single family home portfolios. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of these people are coming out of the property management background where they've been managing these properties. They have some expertise. They've never done a fund before. They've never syndicated capital before, but they want to go ahead and put their talents to use in that regard. Um, obviously, you can step into looking at multifam, commercial, self-storage. I think what I see a lot is people really looking for niches, you know, um, vacation rental stuff. I've seen a lot of that recently where they're buying properties in, you know, uh, by veil, for example, or they're buying beach properties where, you know, these properties are going to have a, a, a better chance of holding value because it's a it's a unique place. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting looking at the different types. We've even seen things like, you know, land banks, um, you know, uh, entitlement type deals. So I ultimately, you know, if you're out there and you're looking to do, uh, you know, syndicate capital for real estate and you're curious, like, hey, can I do this? You know, pick up the phone, call a professional, call, call Nate Dotson, um, you know, because ultimately, you know, it, it, there's a lot of different ways that you can set these deals up. There's a lot of different asset classes that you can invest into. And, and a lot of times it just takes getting one in place. I mean, you know, um, there's, there's always a first step for people. I think one of the key things is put a good team in place. If you have a good team supporting you through this process, it's going to be a lot easier for you to get through the process with confidence uh, and know you're doing things properly. And I think that's one of the big key things. And I, I, Again, I know Nate and Chris probably run into this a lot when you're doing your due diligence. And that is, you know, hey, have you sold securities before? Or, you know, have you had any rounds from this company that you've executed? And then you find out, well, we did a friends and family round that actually was like 38 people and we didn't make any filings. So I think ultimately, too, that's one of the points to really drive home here. There are rules that apply to you going and raising money. Um, you, you can't just spin up an LLC and go out on LinkedIn and start telling people to come buy membership interests in your LLC. There are rules that apply to that. That's, that's why this ecosystem is in place, uh, is to get you through that process so that you don't run afoul of rules and you do everything properly. Uh, because the last thing you want is to do something improperly and have rescission issues happening or obviously have state or federal regulators coming in and looking at you. So that that's one of the big things right there is just know the fact that there are rules that apply. If you have any questions on that, obviously pick the phone up, you know, call me, call Nate, call Chris, but you know, call Core Connects. But I mean, you know, I've, I've always been surprised how many, how many times, especially in real estate where operators just didn't think rules were going to apply to them uh, and then ended up having a problem. So that's why these, these programs are here. And look, they give you the ability to generally solicit. I mean, the technology and the programs now are phenomenal. So there's no excuse not to come through and do a proper offering and, and do everything properly. Um, we're at the end here. Uh, Nate, as always, uh, wealth and knowledge. Thank you so much for being on the panel. Chris, fantastic to get your viewpoint from the broker-dealer angle on all this. Um, and uh, yeah, very excited to have you guys on. And uh, it was uh, it was great having a discussion on, you know, obviously real estate and these programs and then mixing that that token angle in as well. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Core Connects. Okay.